Keith Rupert Murdoch, born 11th of March 1931. Happy 80th for next month, Rup. Son of a newspaper proprietor, had a bust of Lenin in his rooms at Worcester College. When his father died, Rupert inherited a single evening paper, the Adelaide News. From that, he built News Corporation, the greatest media empire the world has ever known. My name is Ozymandias, King of Kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. The company includes 102 separate businesses. One of them is News International, sponsors of these lectures. Another is Zondervan, the world's leading Bible publisher, whose mission is to be, and I quote, the leader in Christian communications, meeting the needs of people with resources that glorify Jesus Christ and promote biblical principles, close quote. Another is the news of the world. People somewhat intrigued by the complications attending tonight's lecture have asked whether I'm pro or anti-Murdoch. It's an absurd question, like saying, do you like rain? Let's attempt a quick balance sheet. Firstly, and obviously very important, it was Rupert Murdoch's benefaction that made this series of lectures possible, and I'm most grateful. I'm even more grateful that in 1986, he covertly created his whopping print works and crushed Britain's print unions, which by then had turned into organisations that had more in common with gangland than trade unionism. Without that, I don't see how Fleet Street, which has given me a good living and a wonderful career, could have survived as long as it has. More objectively, he has built News Corporation single-handed on debt and risk and his perceptions of what the market wanted. Within Britain alone, he has backed his skill and judgment to the hilt on three separate occasions when he perceived opportunities that no one else saw. Each time he was proved right. These have defined the country's media landscape and, to some extent, the country itself. The first was his decision to take over the failing, earnest, leftish, middle-brow son in 1969. The day before the handover from the old owners took place, the new, young and then little-known owner was given space in the paper to lay out his manifesto. He didn't quite say he would be glorifying Jesus Christ and promoting biblical principles. He did say it would be the paper that cares about truth, beauty and justice. In private, he reportedly expressed it slightly differently. I want a tearaway paper with a lot of tit. <laughs> I think we know which direction was chosen. We should also be clear that his perception of what readers wanted was spot on. From a standing start, the sun overtook the Daily Mirror to become Britain's biggest selling daily in just over eight years. The second crucial decision was whopping. The third was Sky TV. Only a churl would refuse him credit for the acuity and daring of these decisions. 
we may be on the brink of a fourth, and I hope so, the end of giving away newspaper content on the internet for nothing. Again, others have lacked the guts to do what he's done. And Sky TV is one of the wonders of the world. The Sky Plus remote control is one of the most brilliant gadgets ever invented, superbly designed. I can watch or record any program from one of hundreds of channels in seconds. A child can do it in microseconds. <laughs> if anything goes wrong, you ring the call centre in Scotland, where a sweet woman with a soft accent will deal with the problem efficiently and knowledgeably. I wish I could get the same service from BT or Barclays Bank. <laughs> B Sky B's interim profits for the second half of 2010 were up 26% to £520 million. Their customer base has just hit the 10 million mark at a time of extreme austerity and at a time when Sky were ramping up the price of its full package above 50 quid a month, a fact I don't recall the company discussing with me before it raided my credit card. And yet, when you look at the 102 companies, what is the common thread? What does the news of the world have to say to Zondervan except maybe, forgive us, O oh Lord. They are linked only by their ownership. And there does seem to me an emptiness at the heart of it all. How can one equate the excellence of the Sky News service that we see in Britain and the manipulative malevolence of its US equivalent Fox? How does one equate the subversive brilliance of The Simpsons, a programme of enormous genius, and one that gets away even with gentle satire of its grandmaster. But how does one equate that with the fact that on tonight's Sky One schedule, they are showing five episodes of The Simpsons because the cupboard is otherwise so utterly bare? And how do we equate the quality of so much in The Times, employer of so many excellent journalists, with the pathetic contortions it goes through when faced as it so often is, with an issue involving one of the other 101 businesses. There's a widespread belief that the Murdoch newspapers influence British elections. And it's certainly true that in every election for more than 30 years, the Sun has vigorously backed the winning side. And in 1992 in particular, may have made a difference to the result. Murdoch's extreme opponents might regard that as a sign of the evil empire's power. I think they may be looking at it the wrong way round. In the British context, News Corporation's business has depended on its ability to either shape or get round the complex and ever-changing regulatory framework in which it has to operate. It needs a grateful, pliant, client government. I would say that most often, in politics as in business, Murdoch has spotted and backed winners Thatcher, Blair, Cameron, rather than created them. Though he transcends national boundaries himself, his outlets habitually applaud patriotism. The vital question, however, is the one asked by the Holy Roman Emperor Franz II. Is he a patriot for me? I I'm not venturing into this non-sporting area just to be mischievous. <coughs> not really. The background is crucial to the theme of the lecture. 
The task is to find the seat of power in modern sport, a vital and ever-growing part of the economy and national life. And to do so, we have to understand something of the chief patron. Last week, we left the story at the 1990 World Cup. Britain was transfixed by Paul Gascoigne's tears and the drama of the football. Rupert Murdoch was at the time transfixed by a more personal drama. Among the fantastic films produced by his main film company, 20th Century Fox, was Titanic. And in 1990, the unsinkable News Corp nearly hit an iceberg. The culprit was Sky TV. At that time, two infant companies were battling it out to sell the British a product, the satellite dish, that met an apparently non-existent need. One of the companies was British Satellite Broadcasting, inventors of the so-called square reel. The other was Sky. In the last lecture, I mentioned how a TV aerial in 1949 was a form of social climbing. In 1989, a Sky dish was the reverse, an indication of chaviness avant la lettre, a sign that said, here be a council flat with sun readers and children called Kylie. But even the sun readers weren't really biting. In mid-1989, take-up of dishes was way below projections and the new Murdoch venture was losing £2 million a week. What's the difference between Sky TV and the Loch Ness Monster, ran one joke of the era. Some people have seen the Loch Ness Monster. <laughs> a BSB square reel might have been considered more stylish. It was less obtrusive, and the company, owned by a consortium of grand media firms like Granada and my own current employers, Pearson, had a more upmarket vision of satellite TV. Unfortunately, the square reel was even less visible than the sky dish. It launched its service nine months late. There were said to be more people at the launch party than had actually brought square reels. <laughs> Mind you, it was a pretty great launch party. This was a company with lacks of financial controls and a group of footballers' wives on a shopping spree. BSB spent £80,000 on designer peppermints. Not surprisingly, it was hemorrhaging money. But the situation of BSB's rivals, Sky, was little better. And on the night of December the 6th, 1990... Sky nearly brought the whole temple down. Murdoch had used vast quantities of debt to power his expansion long before it became fashionable to do so. Since his whopping victory, and it was a whopping victory, over the printers three years earlier, his group's profits had doubled. But he had a vast quantity of short-term debt, which had been sold on and sliced up in the way that has become very familiar so that he owed money to 146 different financial institutions in 10 different currencies. One of those institutions was something called the Pittsburgh National Bank. He only owed them 10 million quid, which in normal times Rupert might have found in his trouser pocket. But he knew nothing about Pittsburgh, and Pittsburgh knew nothing of him, except that he couldn't pay his debts, and so the bank told the News Corp emissary that the company would have to be liquidated. 
the chairman of the bank, this piddly, piddling little bank in Pittsburgh, refused to speak to the boss. He, Rupert Murdoch, who could make presidents and prime ministers jump to attention. Nothing beside remains round the decay of that colossal wreck. Boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. But no. He managed to speak to the chief loans officer. And he begged, and he wheedled, and he prevailed. And the debt was rescheduled. In the main poker game, both sides, Sky and the old BSB, were playing with something like a seven high, a rapidly diminishing pile of chips, and no clue exactly how desperate the opposition was. They sank with relief into each other's arms and merged. Ostensibly, the creation of the new company, B Sky B, was a draw. But the square real investors were more diffuse and far more interested in getting the hell out and returning to more familiar ground. And that left Rupert Murdoch with de facto power over how the new company would be run. The old BSB was essentially a franchisee, given a license by the great and good, sitting in solemn conclave on a quango in the traditional British manner. And BSB had a proud British satellite. It was bespoke, state-of-the-art, technologically whiz-bang, and of course didn't work properly. <laughs> the Astra satellite was a cheapo, using comparatively primitive technology run by a company based in Luxembourg, and Murdoch had hitched a lift. Most importantly, it benefited from a loophole in the 1990 Broadcasting Act. This had provisions severely restricting cross-media ownership, but the final version specifically exempted non-domestic satellites, i.e. Astra. I have heard it suggested that this was specifically designed by Margaret Thatcher's government to protect her favourite media tycoon. Such a notion is, of course, wholly unthinkable in Britain's scrupulous political culture. The deal with BSB also gave Murdoch the right to install his own chief executive, a figure lately poached from Kerry Packer's Channel 9 in Australia, Sam Chisholm. Chisholm has been gone from Britain 14 years now, but to anyone involved in the early days of British satellite, he remains a legend. You can choose any adjective you like to describe Sam, one Sky executive told me. They're all true. These adjectives, regularly used, included small, squat, foul-mouthed, domineering, nasty, vindictive, cunning, ruthless, occasionally charming, and usually right. It was Chisholm, not Murdoch, who was the central figure at Sky in the early 1990s when the company began its ascent from the gutter to the stars. And it was Chisholm obviously with his boss's support and agreement, who drove through the deal that transformed British television and sport, the marriage between Sky and Premier League football. One curious thing about this deal is that neither Chisholm nor Murdoch actually knew anything much about sport or even liked it. When someone mentioned the draw to Chisholm, he said, when do they play that? And, and Rupert, said his best-connected biographer, hates sports, 
hated them in, at school, has no interest in them now. There is a slightly more nuanced version of that given to me by a well-placed source. In his time, Rupert Murdoch has enjoyed swimming, horse riding and tennis, even playing with John Newcomb, the former Wimbledon champion, who might not have been trying his absolute hardest. <laughs> but the sports he really likes, as with the politicians he really likes, are the ones that will enhance his business interests. When he first expanded from Adelaide, an Australian rules town, and bought his first paper in Sydney, he asked what, what sport sold papers uh, there. Rugby league, he was told. Right, he said, we'll feature that. And his paper, the Daily Mirror, soon squashed the opposition, which happened to be called The Sun. He doesn't like films either, apparently. But the prevailing orthodoxy at both the original competing satellite companies was that Hollywood would be the main driver of dish sales. Yet this was absurd. Britain had an exceptionally high penetration of video recorders in the 1980s and 1990s, possibly higher than anywhere else on earth. It was easy and normal to rent, to just nip out and rent a video. Why would you want to pay... £50 a month for Hollywood films. Yet the two companies were desperate to buy up rights from the big studios and they drove up the, the prices of these rights to crazy levels and that's what nearly broke them both. Sport, however, was different. A VHS machine couldn't bring you live league football, something so foreign to the British experience we hardly knew we wanted it. And the timing was magical. The popular success of the 1990 World Cup was the major catalyst that reinvigorated Britain's love affair with football. There were other factors. The Taylor Report, in the aftermath of the Hillsborough tragedy of 1989, forced clubs to bring in all-seater stadiums and curb sales of alcohol. A new generation of fans began to see a football ground as a safe place to take the children or even, heaven forfend, the wife. And football began to get fashionable again. Nick Hornby's 1992 book Fever Pitch, which sold a million copies in the UK alone, helped make soccer intellectually respectable. Not merely was it cool to like football, it was almost compulsory. The resurgence of the game not only coincided with the resurgence of the Labour Party, it helped define it. And Tony Blair discovered an enthusiasm for football that astonished his closest friends. <laughs> Most crucial of all, Sky came on the scene at the moment when the top clubs finally turned their years of chuntering into action. Encouraged initially by ITV, keen to use football as a weapon against the BBC, they finally resolved to cease subsidising the Northampton Towns and Rochdales of the world, set up their own league, the Premier League, and sell their own rights. And in 1992, it happened. After a ferocious contest with ITV, Sky won the rights for £304 million. Now, of course, only Wayne Rooney's hourly rate. But then riches beyond the bounds of even a football chairman's avarice. The circumstances were controversial. There is considerable anecdotal evidence that Sky had instant inside information on ITV's bids. 
Some have mentioned Alan Sugar, the chairman of Tottenham, and therefore party to the negotiations in this context. Sugar's company, Amstrad, happened to make sky dishes. He was allegedly heard shouting down a phone, blow them out of the water. He later claimed he was talking to his girlfriend. The rest is history, or current affairs, because that deal defines the TV that exists to this day. Sky would never be a joke again. Rupert Murdoch would never again have to beg to anyone in Pittsburgh or anywhere else. For those involved, it became a virtuous circle. The clubs got richer and were able to buy the world's best players. So more people wanted to watch. The top clubs were able to fill their grounds and jack their admission prices up. Players' salaries skyrocketed. And so it has gone on as satirised, though barely exaggerated, by David Mitchell. All the football, all the time, constant, dizzying, 24-hour, year-long, endless football. Even the fans were winners, in the sense that they got what they had obviously wanted all along. Much more exciting football, played by much more skilful players. They were willing to pay for it, and to keep paying. Those who didn't want to pay could still see Match of the Day highlights, as they always had done. So who lost? It was a disaster for marine life, as millions of prawns died to fill the sandwiches in the ever-growing number of executive boxes. <laughs> oh, oh, and the England team. As the biennial hysteria surrounding England's performances at the major international championships grew ever more insane... Their achievements grew ever more pathetic. Not surprising. As the president of the Spanish League pointed out after Spain won the World Cup last summer, more than three quarters of the players in the Spanish top division were homegrown, compared to less than 40% in England. Not surprising that England's goalkeeper let through a soft goal if the manager had hardly any keepers playing in the top division to choose from. Three was the low, I believe, out of 20 teams. Uh, last weekend, I'm informed authoritatively, the number went up to six. And because the huge wages come from the clubs, it is clear that the players regard playing for England as secondary. I don't say they couldn't care less. I do say they could care more. One might cynically note that since the listing system still protects the World Cup and European Championships for the terrestrial TV channels. Sky doesn't show them, so England's constant failures are not Sky's problem, nor of the clubs that Sky funds. Even before Sky won the Premier League, the BBC recognised that in this contest it was relegation material and couldn't afford to take part in the bidding war that was about to be unleashed. The Beeb had been repeatedly bashed over the head during the Thatcher years, and it was politically impossible for it to redistribute the public's money to sporting bodies in an ever-increasing spiral. And the spiral was worse than it imagined. Our intention, wrote the then head of BBC TV, Will Wyatt, was that where necessary, we would be able to retreat in good order to prepared strongholds. 
What we could not know was that while our income was to rise by around 3% per annum, the price of the top sporting events was to rise by 30% per annum. It wasn't just a matter of football or even of Sky. In 1997, ITV took the rights to Formula One for nine times what the BBC had been paying. Sport was previously famously cheap television. Now it could cost more per hour than costume drama. But not for Sky, because Sky had airtime coming out of its ears. It took a while even for its own executives to realise that this was a totally new business model, completely different from those of other commercial channels. Adverts were an optional extra. What mattered were the subscriptions. If people bought the dishes and kept paying for them, it really didn't matter whether they watched anything or not. You may have noticed that companies of this type do not make it easy for subscribers to resign. There is a huge amount of inertia. Give me a fucking name on a direct debit and it's mine for life, said Chizzo. Not in public. (laughs) There had to be goodies in the shop window to bring in the direct debits. Dave Hill, that time the head of Sky Sports, said in 1991, sport as drama and sport as soap opera. That's what people want to watch on television. But in the long run, Despite the portentous hype and David Mitchell's accurate prestige of it, this wasn't really what Sky has provided. The drama came from the biggest events, and Sky was shut out of many of those by the listings regime. What it mostly offered instead was wallpaper. BBC, and even more so ITV, were constantly under pressure at sporting events to switch to something else. With three sports channels, even at an early stage, any Sky event could spread itself languorously across the schedules. If the event was short, it could be lengthened by an infinite amount of build-up, previews, interviews, chit-chat and general drivel. If it was long, like cricket, so much the better. This brings us to the fascinating and vexed case of cricket, where Sky's involvement grew and grew, until in 2005 it gained a total monopoly in England. Cricket played an important and underestimated role in the early development of Sky. In the early months of 1990, when Sky had the same social standing as a Rottweiler but less powerful teeth, it showed England's tour of the West Indies, an event the BBC had always spurned as too expensive. And it was usually a waste of time because England at that time were invariably massacred by the West Indian fast bowlers. But not as it happened that time. They won the first test and very nearly won another. And suddenly, as with the early adopters of primitive black and white televisions, the tiny minority with sky dishes were very much in demand. And that trend was reinforced in 1992 when Sky won the rights to the Cricket World Cup in in Australia, which caused the first big spike in dish sales, 100,000 in one dollop, on top of what was now becoming steady organic growth. David Elstein, who became Sky's head of programmes a year later, warned me against overemphasising the role of football. It's a myth that football made Sky, he said. What football did was it embedded Sky. 
the major increases in subscriptions actually came when the multi-channel package was launched, things like UK Gold and TNT. The other came with cricket. That's when Surrey discovered Sky. (laughs) Cricket had always been problematic for traditional TV channels because it went on so damn long. Uh, By 1990, the BBC and the cricket authorities were starting to get mutually disenchanted. And the cricket authorities saw what Sky did with their game and they liked it. Sky took cricket seriously. It didn't keep disappearing for weather forecasts and the 2.30 at Goodwood. Its production values were higher and its ideas were fresher. At that stage, there was no question of England's home tests going to Sky, partly because they were protected by the listings and partly because it was still unthinkable. But cricket had begun to glimpse a world beyond the BBC and it was captivated. In 1999, it took itself to Channel 4, which promised and delivered more imaginative and youth-orientated coverage. For English cricket, it was like a second marriage. It said farewell to the children's mother because she'd grown crotchety and unglamorous and climbed into bed with a sexy young frippet. And there was very little opposition to this change. Even the then editor of Wisdom approved. What? The sexy young Frippet, however, had a commitment problem. And after seven years, Channel 4 got bored too. Even in 2005, when a brilliant Ashes series sent ratings soaring, the game went on forever. You couldn't tell when it was going to finish. If it rained and played late, it caused havoc with the evening schedule. Old films and daytime pap were more trustworthy. Channel 4's bid for a third contract to run from 2006 was unsustainably half-hearted. There was no route back to the first wife. BBC had found other ways of filling the time. And so English cricket, having successfully got self-exempted from the restriction of being listed, fell into the arms of its third wife, B-Sky B. This, however, was a more controversial arrangement because no one was invited to this wedding unless they paid the entrance fee. This, in my judgment, was a catastrophic deal for cricket. There's no live cricket on any mainstream TV channel in this country. I remember how my son, who wasn't much of a cricket fan, would watch Wimbledon and then rush out to try his shots against the wall. That's the magic of sport on TV and how it builds enthusiasm among those who will be the next generation of fans and maybe even stars. For cricket, that's no longer, that is no longer possible because almost no one will find Sky Sports Channel 403 or something unless they are already committed to the game. For football, it's a somewhat different story. There's still a huge chunk of football on BBC and ITV and it's also much more deeply rooted in the community. It's still played informally in every playground and park. Informal cricket has almost vanished. Supporters of the deal blather that the Sky money has funded vast numbers of coaches. But just tell me whenever you last saw kids playing cricket on their own without an adult. The game made a brief comeback during the burst of enthusiasm for the 2005 Ashes. By 2009, the audience had dropped by 75%. In 2010, 
live attendances began to collapse and there were tickets available for the oval test for the first time in a generation. The England and Wales cricket board has done well out of the Sky deal. The bureaucracy has grown, players' salaries have shot up. But then the board had got its way. It spent years lobbying the government to get the sport delisted. This, I believe, is an organisation that has confused its own activities with the health of the actual sport. Sky did what any good business should and it's done an excellent deal. It will last, I'm sure, for quite a few years to come. In the long run, however, cricket has signed its own death warrant. English Rugby Union briefly sold itself to Sky, saw viewing figures go through the floor and then recanted. Other major sports all maintain some presence on mainstream TV. That's how they stay major. For sports that are brought in fully to the Sky option, the old conundrum has been turned on its head. I've talked about in, in previous weeks how in the BBC ITV days, the sports had to weigh up whether the publicity they would receive would be a sufficient benefit to outweigh the possible loss of live attendance. What Sky offers is the reverse. The sports can get rich in the short term, but the price is to disappear into a small and semi-secret corner of the vast mansion that is the Sky menu, there to talk only to themselves. The fear when Sky came into sport was that it would wreck sport with American-style crassness, and, of course, there's something in that. But actually, it rapidly dropped the wilder experiments. It didn't need cheerleaders, because the whole point was providing sport for fans who were already cheering. So let's hold in our mind those two very significant but very different cases, football and cricket, and return to the question I first asked three weeks ago. Where does the power lie? Notionally, for a sport like cricket that's totally dependent on Sky, the answer, quite simply, is Rupert Murdoch. If Murdoch were to wake up tomorrow morning and ring Lords to say that henceforth the England team were to play all their test matches on a beach in the Outer Hebrides, wearing pink tutus and a policeman's helmet... There might be some negotiation about the tutus. <laughs> then the chief executive of the England and Wales Cricket Board would start looking for a map of the Outer Hebrides. In practice, of course, Murdoch couldn't care less. And even his executives are wary of imposing their demands too forcefully. Quite clearly, Sky's requirements are the prime determinant of scheduling, and not just in cricket. But I'd argue that this position is not necessarily as impregnable as it looks. Why is London staging the 2012 Olympics? Because the government willed it, which may be a polite way of saying it appealed to Tony Blair's vanity. And as I speak, Jeremy Hunt, the culture minister, is wrestling with the implications of thwarting News Corp's attempts to take full control of Sky. Government has immense power if it has the political will. There's a third category, the administrators, especially the global power brokers like the International Olympic Committee 
a self-perpetuating oligarchy, hugely puffed up with its own importance, and the masters of football FIFA. They represent the apogee of this extraordinary breed of international sporting politician who fill the first-class compartments of the world's aeroplanes. When we talk now about winning the Olympics or winning the World Cup, most often it doesn't mean any longer the medals table or the results of the final. It's about where the event will be staged. These contests have in fact become far more interesting and significant than much of the rubbish actually served up as competition. And more controversial, as shown by the decision to send the 2022 World Cup to somewhere called Qatar, in circumstances we might politely call questionable. These sporting politicians decide the venues, and governments suck up to them no end. If necessary, laws are changed for their convenience, as Londoners will be irritated to discover next year when they see the special zill lanes so that important people can be whisked to venues without enduring London congestion. At least... So so far as is known, no one has yet died or actually been rendered homeless in order to stage the London Olympics, unlike the estimated 2 million people displaced in order to stage previous Olympics over the past quarter century, plus the estimated 50,000 beggars kicked out of Delhi for the ridiculous Commonwealth Games, and not counting also the 1,000 homes lost in Abuja, Nigeria, to allow the staging of the Miss World contest. We can't pin any of that on Rupert Murdoch. So TV companies are powerful, governments are powerful, administrators are powerful. Uh, who else do we have? There's the press, of course, and sure, newspapers can still break, say, England football managers, if they ridicule them enough. There was Graham Taylor, the turnip, in the 1990s. Then came Steve McLaren, the wally with the brolly. But in other ways, the papers now have to humiliate themselves in a manner that would have been unthinkable a few years ago. In order to publish a dreary five-paragraph interview with the England fast bowler James Anderson last summer, the Daily Mail, the mighty Mail, was forced to add the following. England's first NatWest one day international against Bangladesh on July the 8th, the UK's first cricket match to be broadcast in 3D, will be live on Sky 3D in more than 1,000 pubs in the UK and Ireland. Log on to www.sky.com slash 3D pubs to find your nearest venue. The mail was not, last I heard, one of News Corp's 102 companies. And posher papers, sad to say, submit themselves to similar indignities. Both the Guardian and the Independent had some drivel from one of Anderson's teammates. To secure it, they had to add the following. Stuart Broad uses Maxi Muscle, Europe's leading sports nutrition brand, to maximise his sporting performance. See www.maximuscle.com. There are also increasing skirmishes between owners and authorities intent on... Sorry, between the between the media and rights owners intent on controlling intellectual property rights. In order to attend the Ashes tests in Australia, I was obliged to sign a lengthy document agreeing not to do thousands of things that would have curdled my blood 
if only I'd bothered to read it. Football clubs feel increasingly confident about banning photographers to protect their image rights or journalists who get too critical. More and more news is disseminated via official websites where the public can read them at the same time as journalists. Soon, I suspect, newspapers will have to repay, will have to pay to report games. And thank God I'll be out of it. There will be bleats about the liberty of the press and no one will care. So now we come to the more serious players in the power game. There are the sponsors, who are an important check on the rush towards satellite TV because their requirement is for maximum exposure, or maxi-muscle exposure. But sponsors tend to have short attention spans because association of a brand with a particular product has diminishing returns, as Gillette discovered when it sponsored the Cricket Gillette Cup for 18 years and then found that people thought the company was connected with cricket and not razor blades. (laughs) Then there are the owners. Powerful indeed. But to take the top of the Premier League as the obvious example... Two new models have emerged, neither of them actually sensible. They fall into the categories of either profit maximisation or utility maximisation. And the first category covers the American ownership of Manchester United and Liverpool, uh, certainly under the former Lords of Anfield, Tom Hicks and George Gillette. Both sets of owners loaded the club with debt in order to cover their own acquisition of it, emphasising their own profits and revenue stream rather than the club's continuing success. Since revenue depends on continuing success on the field, which in football is directly related to expenditure on players, this does appear self-defeating. And indeed, Hicks and Gillette have already been run out of Liverpool to the jeering of angry scousers. The second category has much more in common with the old pattern of football chairmanship in the days when the role was fulfilled by muck and brass mill owners and haulage contractors who mixed altruism, fun and self-glorification in varying proportions. These are the utility maximisers and often a certain amount of behind-the-scenes deals with the local councillors which were never quite talked about. But these, in general, are the utility maximisers whose prime object is sporting success rather than short-term profits, though their long-term goals and underlying motivation may, of course, be a little murkier. The exemplar is Roman Abramovich, who, for reasons that have never quite been explained, has poured a large quantity of funds that once belonged to the Russian government into Chelsea Football Club adding considerably to Stamford Bridge's once almost empty trophy cabinet at some some cost to the club's soul and traditional sense of fatalism. (laughs) The same applies to Manchester City, another club with a long history of good-natured gloom, now owned by the Abu Dhabi United Group. City last year spent more on salaries alone than it received in revenue. Because City tried to acquire Wayne Rooney, United, owned by the Skinflint Glazers, felt obliged to increase his salary to £180,000 a week. And that was in the very week, as it happens, that George Osborne was announcing cuts expected to vaporise the jobs of half a million civil servants. But Rooney's salary is nothing. 
In 2009, David Beckham was thought to have been earning £2 million a week. Albert Scanlon was a united forward of the £20 a week generation. He had been the star's of the classic 5-4 win at Highbury in 1958, five days before Manchester United's plane crashed on the runway at Munich, wiping out most of the brilliant Busby Babes team. Scanlon was, you'd say, one of the lucky ones. When he did die, 51 years later, aged 74, the Times obituary noted that he had recovered physically from the terrible injuries he received in the crash and resumed his career and therefore, quote, did not qualify for the insurance payment he would have received had his career been abruptly terminated. He was sold, though, to Newcastle and then to Lincoln and then to Mansfield, which is how this business goes. Later, he worked as a baker, a docker and a security guard, which is how this business used to go. He did get a testimonial at Old Trafford, 40 years after the crash. We should all give some thanks to St Rupert, because with luck, Rooney will never turn into Albert Scanlon. But the games that transfix our country, football, cricket, rugby, golf, boxing, whatever, were not granted to us by Rupert Murdoch, Roman Abramovich, the Sheikhs of Abu Dhabi, or the England and Wales Cricket Board. They emerged through the mists of time from the primeval mud and the springy uplands. They're more than anything Britain's gift to the world and to ourselves. Sport is our heritage and our patrimony. It plays a vital role in our cohesiveness as a society. It's a reason to get up in the morning, a reason to care, a reason to go on living and forget whatever misery may beset you. There's something so precious about it, it shouldn't belong to any individual, be they British, Russian, Arab or Australian-American. AFC Wimbledon, which grew out of a supporters club, a supporters group formed to protest against the original Wimbledon FC's move to Milton Keynes, are now top of the conference, the highest division below the Football League and well-placed to be promoted. It's an amazing story, a genuine people's revolution. But it's amazing because in this country it's so rare. Look elsewhere and you see a freer, better world. In Spain, Real Madrid and Barcelona are both owned by their supporters. In Germany, the rules of the Bundesliga prohibit outside interests gaining more than a 49% share in any club. The rest must remain with club members. In 2009, this rule was challenged and reinforced by a vote in favour, 35 to 1. The result cannot be any clearer, said League President Dr Reinhard Rabor. The Bundesliga remains faithful to itself and will continue to build on the factors which have made a decisive contribution to making German footballs successful over recent decades. These are stability, continuity, and being close to the fans. The stadiums are full, tickets are relatively cheap, and the games are on free-to-air television. 
Arguably, German clubs have done less well than English ones lately in the Champions League. However, result of the 2010 World Cup, winners Spain, Germany semi-finalists yet again, having knocked England out 4-1. England a laughing stock. To survive, any institution must be run in what we might call a business-like fashion. This applies to government, sports clubs and universities. But we must nail and destroy the lie that sport is a business as such if we are to preserve it for future generations. It's sport and it belongs to all of us. And that's why here I stand, as though I were once again seven years old and had nipped through the gap in the hedge to ask our kindly next-door neighbour, politely, imploringly, please, mister, can we have our ball back? <laughs>